good morning, everybody. Welcome back into the Mining Stock Daily Friday morning long-form episode here on the podcast. Trevor Hall here with you as always, your host. We've got two segments to share with you today. First, long conversation with returning guest Chris Berry from House Mountain Partners. It's a in-depth conversation, all things U.S. supply chain when it comes to battery technology and the electrification of well, the country. Uh, we covered a lot of topics. I had a lot of questions for Chris, so it was important to get his thoughts out because he is kind of runs that line between macro dynamics and also politics based out of DC area. So good conversation with Chris. Uh, we then turned to Paul Wessels of Western Copper and Gold. Good conversation with him as well. Trying to get to the bottom of everything going on there at the casino project. The a lot of discussions abound what might be happening up there in Yukon. So we'll try to see what uh, Paul can share with us. Special thank you to Western Copper and Gold, Integra Resources, Rio 2, and Arizona Sonoran Copper for their continued support of the podcast. If you wouldn't mind, do go to that network you use to listen to the podcast and leave us a review if you could. It does us a lot of good to get in front of new investors as this market continues to heat up. All right, let's join my conversation in with Chris Berry. Have a great weekend, everybody. Be well. You're in here with the first segment of our Friday morning long form episode here on Mining Stock Daily. Uh, this is an interview that uh, is <laughs> probably two months overdue uh, for a number of reasons, uh, but I'm happy to welcome in once again, once again Chris Berry of, of uh, House Mountain Partners. Uh, for those of you who aren't, who, who aren't aware of who Chris is and what his firm does, they provide advisory and consultancy services to a broad array of clientele, including asset managers and academia on how supply chain dynamics are being altered by volatility in commodity markets, geopolitics, and macroeconomics. And so just by that description alone, you could understand why Chris's phone is ringing off the hook. And so I'm very much appreciative of his time today. Uh, Good morning, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well, Trevor. Thanks for having me back. It's great to uh, great to chat. Yeah, uh, listen, you you and I have known each other. I don't know three four years now, uh, and we've continued to have discussions amongst the same things of battery metals, not only exploration, production, development into new technologies. Uh, I don't think in those few years that I've known you, we've experienced just so much volatility. Well, there's always been a fundamental supply demand factor we've touched base on, but we've never had this um, geopolitical tension, supply chain disruptions, and on top of that, a process of what appears to be deglobalization, if I may say so. Uh, how has the events of the last month or two really? change your approach in your career and your consult in your consultancy and what you're sharing with your clients? 
Well, I think probably the biggest um, change <clears throat> just in the last couple of months or even maybe slightly ahead of, of you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is, of course, inflation throughout the supply chain. Um, you know, you can look at any of the battery metals, like, for example, lithium, uh, which is up, gosh, over 500 percent. The spot pricing in China is up over 500 percent just in the last year or so. You know, if you're a battery manufacturer, if you're an automotive OEM, if one of your raw materials uh, from a pricing perspective goes parabolic, it's not that big a deal. Uh, but the issue becomes when lithium, when nickel, when copper, when cobalt all go, as we you know say in the business, lower left to upper right on a chart, what do you do? How do you hedge that volatility? How do you build a business? And you know that is what I think certainly the legacy automotive manufacturers uh, in the West are struggling with right now, managing the internal combustion engine business and those cost pressures, but also trying to build an EV business as well. And so you know the name of the game right now is trying to think through. Okay, as we roll out or rebuild, if you will, an EV supply chain here in the West, how do you manage those costs? And, you know, part of that, I think, at least initially comes from just making sure that you have your hands on enough raw material out of the next three to five years. And that's always been the issue, certainly from when you and I started chatting to well before that. The name of the game was security of supply. Okay, and so that's really issue number one. Um, we can get into some of the pricing dynamics as well, but generally speaking, the shock to the system just in the last six to twelve months has been the upward push in uh, cost pressures along the supply chain as they get rebuilt. Yeah, you mentioned prices of those metals going from lower left to upper right. You know, it it, it feels like the market has always pushed towards a. A, a renaissance towards electrification of vehicles. Uh, you know, the market tends to have its way. And vehicle manufacturers are, deliver, are really trying hard to deliver, you know, besides Tesla. But it seems like in the last couple of years, as more and more of these models have come to market and demand has risen, now here's the a curveball and just smacked in the face with higher prices. What does this mean? What do those higher prices mean for the demand in the market now when it comes to electrification? Yeah, I, I like to say that, you know, uh, things will be delayed, but not denied. Uh, mm. One of the biggest selling points in, uh, you know, the whole EV thesis is, and I've talked about, we've talked about this, but this general kind of deflationary cost fall or cost compression in the price of a lithium-ion battery. Okay, there are famous charts out there, whether or not they're from Bloomberg or wherever, but you know they kind of show from 2010 to basically last year about a 90% decrease in the cost of a lithium-ion battery um, in terms of dollars per kilowatt hour, and so that has definitively you know stopped um, to the point where. I think probably by 20, certainly this year and next, um, the price decrease has plateaued and arguably into 2023, it, it may continue. It really just depends on, again, the, the, you know, I think the broader macro argument about is inflation in the economy transitory or is it structural? And, you know, again, kind of a separate debate from what we're talking about right now, but certainly 
uh, very, very pertinent. And this is the type of thing that I think keep, keeps supply chain managers and purchasing managers in these OEMs up at night. Again, trying to manage manage the cost um, the cost inflation. And so, you know, what does that mean? Getting, I think, directly to your point. Well, number one. Um, Again, if you kind of followed that trajectory of cost decrease for the lithium-ion battery, it was probably going to be about 2024, 2025 by the time a light-duty full electric vehicle, okay, would be cheaper or at parity to a traditional internal combustion engine. And so the reason why I say it's delayed but not denied is that's clearly going to be pushed back by a year or two. So I would think you would see that parity probably 2026 to 2027 at this point in time. So, you know, it's not uh, it's not a dagger in the heart of the bull thesis, but again, it does, I think, give, give you pause as an investor as you try to think about, okay, well, where do I want to be exposed to the supply chain? Clearly, you know, it looks like the miners in particular are going to be in a great spot over the next couple of years. That's really interesting. It doesn't seem like much of a delay. It's really not in the grand scheme of things. I mean, when you think about how, when you think about sort of uh, planning cycles that a lot of these OEMs will undertake to bring new models to market, I mean, you're talking in terms of years. So, and, you know, the other, I think, um, hopeful sign here, if that's the right way to think about it, is the fact that, you know, if you look at a lithium-ion battery, okay, and you think about, okay, well, where, where are the costs spread out between anode, cathode, electrolyte separator, you know, about 50% of your costs are embedded in the cathode, but uh, maybe 10%, 10 to, I don't know, maybe it's high as 15%, let's call it 10%, for example, of that 50% is the lithium. So from that perspective, the OEMs may just have to, you know, swallow their pride and, and pay up for the raw material because it's better to have it at a higher price than not have it at all. So the, psycho- the inflationary psychology, we always talk about inflationary psychology amongst consumers. It's obviously v- very much in line with the producers needing the raw materials. You feel like that is happening now. Get that material as much as you can at whatever cost you can now. Is there fear of it continuing to rise here in the short to midterm? It's hard to say. You know, when you, when you look at, um, I, I guess if we're just going to focus on lithium for a second, but, you know, battery grade lithium carbonate on the spot market, which is a small portion, maybe 10% of the overall lithium market, is at about 70 to 75,000 US dollars per ton today, okay? And for the sake of perspective, traditionally battery grade lithium carbonate has been anywhere from 6,000 to $8,000 a ton um, going, you know, going forward, going back a long, long ways. All right. And so we've seen a 10 X increase in the price. Again, that's the spot market. Now, again, the concern is that typically what happens in China with respect to battery metals happens there first. And then over the course of the next six to eight to 12 months filters throughout the rest of the supply chain. And so I'm not here to tell you that in six or 12 months, uh, you're going to see $75,000 lithium pricing here in the US or, or, you know, down in South America or in Europe, but you're certainly going to see materially higher contracted lithium prices, I think for the next couple of years, anywhere from say 25 to perhaps as high as 35,000 US dollars a ton. And so again, as you think about where you want to position yourself uh, as an investor, as a supply chain manager, obviously you're going to be focused on the upstream portion 
of the supply chain because that's where all of the growth and the torque is. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned China there, and I'm glad you did because there's always this been this um, perception that China really has a stronghold on the lithium market. Maybe you can comment on that if that's a correct statement or not. But I do want to kind of follow up with that and, and ask you as we continue to see globalization appearing to come to its end days, what does that mean with the lithium market and uh, you know, big producers, and, and if China does have that stronghold on the lithium market, how does how does a country like the United States or even all of North America transition into creating it, its own drastic supply? Well, I think just there are a couple of really great points to draw out of your questions, and and first of all, you know, just to answer directly, deglobalization or reshoring or regionalization of supply chains is inherently inflationary okay the whole idea behind four or five decades of globalization was to chase the lowest cost lowest cost production whether or not that was labor access to materials what have you um, and that's why so much of of supply chains have ended up in asia and in china in particular so if we're going to reverse that and you know this is not something that's going to happen overnight and i'm not sure if there ever will be a perfect deglobalization um but it's going to be more inflationary just because the cost structure here in the U.S. or the EU relative to some of the lower lower wage parts of the world um, is is much, much higher. OK, and so, you know, again, that, that's the first point. The second point is, well, how does government get involved in the reshoring or regionalization of supply chains and whether or not it was, you know, we can have a debate. And I think we have had debates, Trevor, on, on your podcast here about what kicked off the deglobalization theme and thesis. And clearly, you know, I think Trump and uh, his, his trade war, for lack of a better phrase, with China was was a wake up call, certainly, and and promoted a lot of awareness, I think, about how dominant the Chinese are with respect to lithium and nickel and mm -hmm. cobalt. Of course, that was exacerbated by COVID. And I think, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has only um, reinforced the issue of how vulnerable energy supply chains are in particular. And so, you know, if you, if you really don't, in my view, need to look much further than that, um, the good news is that governments all over the world, I think, have woken up to these vulnerabilities and are finally, um, years later, maybe not too late, but certainly years later, getting in the ballgame, for lack of a better phrase. Of course, President Biden, um, about a year ago, actually, issued an executive order. It was Executive Order 14017, which kicked off what he was calling, or his administration was calling, the 100-day supply chain review. And that was basically a clarion call to the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense, the Department of the Interior, all of his, his what, what, you know, I think was called a whole of government approach to take a very clear look at supply chain vulnerabilities from the standpoint of the United States. All right. And so a couple of different things have happened. There were four areas that were keyed on with respect to that executive order. It was large capacity batteries, semiconductors pharmaceuticals, and critical materials. And so basically, I'll fast forward here because I know I'm going on, but long story short, the executive order was issued. The reports came back from his various um, 
uh, department officials and, of course, something that you and I have known for a long time. There is a, a, a great deal of, of uh, reliance on, you know, not, not even enemies, but certainly strategic adversaries like China. And so the Defense Production Act, which is a, which is a source of presidential authority, it was actually created in 1950 by the U.S. Congress, uh, was was brought back into being, for lack of a better phrase, from President Biden, and that is the goal. There is to reduce vulnerability and reduce reliance, with a focus on the upstream portion of the supply chain. So I'll pause there. We can go into more detail, but that's really what got us to this point. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm really glad you mentioned this because I do want to dive. I do want to dive into uh, D. DPA. Sorry, I was trying to think of the abbreviation. Um, But the theme here, and this is quite interesting, it seems like the interest from federal government in this supply chain audit, if, if I may say so, is more one based on defense and military than it is on basic economics and in production. Yeah, that's, is that safe thing correct. to say? I mean, is that going to be is that is that going to be what really drives this is defense and military, and then the economics will come after? That's I would say that's generally speaking correct. Again, the, the DPA as it is defined is it, it gives the president of the United States the authority to expedite and expand the supply of materials and services for the U.S. industrial base. Yeah needed to promote national defense. So, yes, this is the short answer to your question, but that has been expanded now to uh, economic security as well as national security. And that's where I would argue, you know, the battery business and the battery infrastructure plays a key role going forward. Oh, very interesting. I mean, uh, this point has been made is, you know, why are we so dependent, we as a country in the United States, so dependent on critical materials from countries like China when you can go hit any news network, any sort of day, and we talk about how adversarial China is to the United States? Well, we're, we're, we're attached at the hip. And again, this is, like, I think, a broader geopolitical discussion, generally speaking. But, you know, you could make an argument that the Chinese need us. They need the, the U.S. just from the standpoint of an export market, uh, just as much as we need them from a low-cost sort of competitive perspective. Of course, all of that is starting to change. And so, you know, it's anybody's guess what things look like in, in five or ten years. I will say that just from a strategic perspective of building out critical supply chains, the Chinese have, have made it clear in at least the last two, if not their last three, five-year plans, so 15 years ago, that this is what they intend to do, right? Build out their critical material supply chains. And again, you could have a discussion about lithium or nickel or cobalt. They all have their own kind of dynamics, but... Chinese have gone out and written very large checks to lock up raw materials in Argentina and Chile and Australia, other parts of the world, while at the same time building out their critical materials industrial base. And so they've been doing this for 15 years. And so it's going to take us at least that long, 10 to 15 years, I would argue, to really compete at the same level. So I'm very encouraged by what I see with respect to the DPA, or even in, in the EU, I mean, they have um, the Battery Directive, uh, which is a very large document that kind of lays out how the EU envisions its own supply chain. Um, 
but it's not it's not going to happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight for the Chinese, and it won't happen overnight for us. But I'm I'm encouraged by what I see in terms of awareness from the federal government level all the way down. I you know I can tell you that just with the clients and the the types of folks that are calling me these days, it's not. You know, it's not your typical kind of hedge fund, right? Trying to figure out, you know, what's going on with this company or what's going on with lithium. It's much larger and what I would call maybe unconventional pools of capital. Uh, a lot of private equity interest in terms of, again, investing in the supply chain. Um, it's a lot of oil and gas, which is something that, you know, literally did not happen um, up to about, you know, maybe 12 to 18 months ago for me. And so every every corner i would argue of the industrial base in this country and in the eurozone is really thinking hard about okay how do we build out this electrification supply chain so it's very very good i think to have the government kind of um at your back for lack of a better phrase here in the west sure I, the concern though from people that watch politics is this is nothing more than a pr stunt a move for votes in november uh, does this feel different to you? Is it is is this the first step into a major shift for U.S. supply chains from you know from the ground up? <laughs> you know, no pun intended. Yeah, I think. Look, then that's a valid concern, and it's the type of thing that it should keep a lot of us awake at night. Because you know, what if what if a lot of what we're seeing out of Washington is all for naught? I would say that the level of interest and engagement, you know, I'm based in Washington, D.C., and just the level of interest and engagement that I have seen in the last 12 to 18 months is unlike anything I've ever seen in my career. Um, again, that doesn't mean that, you know, this is all tied up with a bow and, you know, we're, we're good to go here. You're right. Things can change. Administrations can change. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty encouraged by the momentum that I see right mm. now. Is it coming from both sides or just predominantly one side it's coming from both sides i mean i think you can you can make a rational argument around whatever you want to call it green energy or electrification or the rebuild of the industrial base both republicans and democrats can agree that that a rebuild of our industrial base around next generation technologies is a good thing it creates jobs it generates tax revenue it funds research and development which i think is how we in the West compete with the Chinese. I don't think we compete, you know, going to the bottom of the barrel and trying to find the lowest cost place to do business. Um, I think we compete through innovation. And yeah. I think that's one of the big, that's one of the ways that the government can really help. So uh, two ideas and themes I, I want to fork off here. First one is, if if there appears to be a little bit of bipartisan support within this realm, first question is, why make it difficult for nickel projects in Minnesota, copper projects in Alaska, copper projects in Arizona, just continue to have issues on the federal level? That's theme one. Uh, the second theme, and I just want to ask the question so I don't forget to ask because it is important, is... The people in D.C. that create these policies, are they aware or concerned that this green energy movement has been pushed so hard, so fast, that that is a culprit to the higher moves in basic fossil fuel energies that we're seeing? And with one could make the argument that those policies are part of the reason why you're paying 4 or $5 a gallon of gasoline here in the U.S.? 
Yeah, those and those are both valid points. And with respect to point number one, uh, if there is a weakness in the in the Defense Production Act, it's that you know it talks about building out the supply chain and funding raw materials, um, but it does not address permitting. And mm. one of one of the weaknesses, I would argue, that the United States has I, again, it's a thorny issue, but. Um, Hey, some people look at it as a weakness, some people look at it as a strength, but my point is that the fact that it will take 10 plus years to build a new mine, a new Greenfields mine here in the United States um, is a problem because you can't have a situation where, okay, it's going to take 10 plus years to bring new raw material on stream domestically, but I can build a cathode manufacturing facility or a recycling facility in, say, you know, three, three to four years tops. I mean, what good is having the downstream infrastructure if you don't have the raw material to feed it? And so, you know, that's, that's the push and pull. And, you know, sure, point number two, I, I think there are a lot of reasons why, um, you know, oil and gas in particular have gone sky high. Does the, does the push, does the move to green energy um, contribute to it? Yeah, absolutely it does. Um, you know, but I don't by any stretch of the imagination think it's it's the only culprit. I mean, I think there's a bigger geopolitical issue um, underlying those those higher raw material prices. But again, to be fair, you know, higher oil and gas certainly does affect green economics, for lack of a better phrase, uh, because, again, it makes everything more expensive. You talked about the lag time of getting new greenfields mines up into running and into production. But what about processing and smelters what's the capacity of the united states now to finish raw materials at a smelter final processing what do we have now and what would it take to get to what we need to so say you're not sending concentrate to korea or japan or in china sure so you know i mean i think that well there's smelting capacity that uh is is does exist and is available here in north america but you know i'm a little bit more focused on on the battery component production. And mm -hmm. um, we're sitting here today in the United States and there is around 55 gigawatt hours of lithium ion battery cell capacity in the US. If you, you know, there are maps that are floating around out there with, with the production plans for all of the OEMs and the battery manufacturers that plan to set up shop here, that will grow to over 500 gigawatt hours of capacity by 2030. So, um, Again, huge, huge opportunity. And of course, then there's the Eurozone and there's what's happening in China. But again, without access to the raw materials, you know, how much of that 500 gigawatt hours can realistically be up and running by, by 2030? I'm actually of the opinion that, you know, you take a lot of the numbers that you see out there in terms of potential capacity by 2030 and, you know, you, you cut it down by 20 to 30 percent. So, but even 70% of 500 gigawatt hours is still orders of magnitude ahead of where we are today. So very, very bullish, but you know, it all starts and ends with, with those raw materials. And look, I mean, lithium as an example is not rare. Okay. Um, you could extract it from seawater if you had to, but you know, it looks as though as we sit here today, unless some of these near-term production plays get into production by, say, in the United States by 2025 or 2026, we're still going to be importing a majority of these critical raw materials well into this decade. Mm. From an investor's standpoint, 
you know, we've seen lithium booms before, booms and busts. Uh, we're obviously, it appears to be in a lithium boom now. I mean, I have, uh, I have one company I've invested in, in the lithium space and it's up two, 300%. So I've done really, really well with it, but I'm, you know, is there concern that what goes up here in the lithium space so quickly could come down just as fast, if not faster? There's, there's always that concern. And I think one of the, um, one of the things that I always remind myself and, and, you know, remind clients is that this, this is a cycle, okay, no matter what. And just in my career, this is now the third lithium cycle that I have, I guess, participated in or been witness to. And they all start and end differently. Um, you know, I've never seen pricing, at, you know, where it is today, um, nor did I think we would get there this soon. I will say that, you know, and I'm not going to say things are different this time because in general, they're not right. There will be mean reversion, uh, at some point in the future, but, um, you, you can have a situation where you have the automotive industry globally all pushing towards the same goal and not see pretty much sustained pressure on these raw material prices. You know, does lithium go from 75,000 today to a hundred thousand by the end of the year? It's possible. Um, but I wouldn't think you're going to see that. I certainly, if you just, even in the last couple of weeks, look at lithium pricing, it looks like it's taken a little bit of a breather. Uh, there was a big meeting actually in China amongst the producers and the government, and they called for a more quote-unquote rational lithium price, which means that they're probably going to hit the brakes on, on consumption. And since that meeting, you've seen lithium pricing kind of top out. And so, you know, again, what's going to happen is it's great for the, the miners that operate under contracts because they'll redo or renew their contracts at higher pricing. But, um, you know, Yes, the short answer to your question is this will mean revert somehow, some way into the future. But I would argue that, again, you can have a conversation about lithium or nickel or any one of these metals individually, certainly with lithium. I wouldn't think you'd see any you know, significant mean reversion before 2024 or 2025. I just think mm -hmm. that um, if there's one thing we've learned from the space, it's actually really difficult to bring on large amounts of battery grade material into the market on time and on budget and we've just never seen demand like we're seeing now so you know still bullish on the theme but but aware that you know thing things can and will change i'll just say one other thing and then i'll pause one of the interesting things that i've noticed in this cycle and this goes this goes beyond lithium i just feel like there's a lot more capital discipline or capital mm -hmm. allocation discipline in the space um, the deals that I have seen go through in lithium and nickel do not seem to me to be outrageous from a valuation perspective or from a kind of a demand perspective for the miner or for the off taker. And, you know, the big red flag, I think, in every cycle is when that, when that monster deal comes through that top ticks the market. And of course, it top ticks the market in hindsight. But, you know, you just haven't seen it. You haven't seen... I don't know, a Western OEM buy a mining company or something, you know, un unforeseen, you know, like that. Um, I just haven't seen a lack of capital discipline. And, you know, once I do, then I'll start to get a little bit more nervous, but I'm just not seeing it right now. 
Oh, that's a somewhat encouraging. So that's good. Hey, I, I, let's uh, take a pause away from. We've talked a lot about lithium for the last half hour. It's obviously important to you and what you do and the conversations you have. But uh, you did quickly mention nickel there. That's obviously been an ongoing saga on the global market. The LME um, is just just oh man, it's just been such a mess over there. Um, but be describe to us how the Russia uh, um, push in Ukraine disrupted the nickel supply. And again, what is, how can the United States in a world of deglobalization uh, continue to supply nickel for those OEMs who absolutely need it for continued battery production? Yeah, I think it's a real problem. And again, it's one of the reasons why the nickel market has gone crazy. Um, you know, look, nickel is obviously a much larger market than uh, lithium, um, and, it, and it probably always will be. Look, w- with respect to Russia, <clears throat> Russia is responsible for around 250,000 tons of, of global production. That's just shy of 10%. So let's say Russia is responsible for around 8% of global nickel production. Um, but interestingly enough, they are responsible through primarily through Norilsk nickel, responsible for around 17% of what's known as class one nickel. All right. And class one nickel is what is required, quite frankly, because of its purity um, in the battery business. And so, you know, nickel, again, if, if I hate to keep coming back to lithium, but, you know, right now, lithium 60% plus goes into the battery business, it's obviously much lower for nickel. It's maybe 10% if that, um, but it's growing and it's growing fast. And so you've got a situation where you have this shock to the system in the sense that, you know, nobody in the West wants Russia, Russian sourced nickel. So, you know, it'll, that will end up in China, which is good for them and not good for, I would argue, the rest of the supply chain. But, um, you know, that, that is really the issue. And so, again, it is, it is incumbent on other sources coming on stream. Now, the problem becomes those other sources are in countries like Indonesia that are not known for producing a great deal of class one material. They produce material through an expensive, complicated process known as high-pressure acid leaching. It is possible to produce class one here, but it comes at a cost. And so, you know, as we kind of look out over the horizon and try and figure out, okay, so you know, you look at the LME today, nickels at, I think it's $33,000 a ton, give or take. You know, you're going to need a floor of $20,000 nickel to convert mm. class two into class one at any kind of scale. So, you know, the nickel market is frozen right now, I think it's fair to say. Everyone's still kind of reeling from, from the shenanigans on the, on the LME. But the bottom line is, as EV penetration continues, batteries proliferate, and many of them are nickel-heavy cathodes, I think you're looking at a floor of at least $20,000 nickel uh, going forward. Hmm. How about the copper market? Obviously, it's the most conductive metal uh, available. Uh, we're going to need a lot of it. We, you and I have chatted about the supply-demand fundamentals behind Dr. Copper. You know, since the last we spoke a few months ago, you know, has there anything uh, from your research or your your analysis that's really jumped out to you about the copper market, or is it still one of those, you know, full steam ahead type of things? 
I, st I think it's full steam ahead, but you know, in, in the copper market, everyone is really focused on Chile right now. Um, this is a country that is, we may have chatted about this in the past, but they're rewriting their constitution. Um, now, what that means for resources and what that means for royalties around resources, again, is, is a little bit of an open question. I'm not here to do any alarmist fear-mongering, but I would argue that one of the reasons why copper is at $4.70 a pound today or wherever we are is partially because Chile, which is one of the major producers, is rewriting their constitution, number one, and number two, rethinking royalty regimes around new copper and new lithium, in particular, uh, projects. And so that just tends to put a little bit of a chill um, in, in terms of, of investment. Again, I'm not here to say that, you know, you run away from Chile because uh, it's game over. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is there's a fair amount of uncertainty in the market in terms of how, uh, you know, a new sort of left-leaning government in Chile plays out with respect to resources. And so, again, it, you're sort of forced to look elsewhere for copper. You're going to look in Indonesia. You're going to look in the DRC. Obviously, you know, you could look in the United States as well. Everywhere else has its pros and cons. So still very, very bullish on the opportunity. Um, I wouldn't think you would necessarily see sort of a structural pinch in the copper market like you will in, in lithium or nickel, maybe before the middle of the decade. Again, a lot of it depends on access to the material and how the electrification thesis is playing out. But uh, yeah, I, gosh, if, you, if I had to pick three, you know, metals to focus on this this decade, it would be lithium, nickel, and copper. Hmm. What's interesting about the Defense Protection Act is that I don't believe copper is involved in 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 that in in the writing of that. Or I'd have, yeah, I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look. I, you know, I think they what really got the headlines was the the quote unquote critical metals. But you could certainly right. argue that copper is a critical metal. I think that you know, there's a fair amount of 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 production in the um in the united states with respect to copper so it's not like lithium where there's almost nothing or cobalt where there's almost nothing so right. maybe it wasn't viewed as even though it is critical in the sense that we need it for the infrastructure it's not critical in the sense that we're not as reliant on on other parts of the world well and i'm just kind of wondering if there's a silver lining in there to say like you know listen government is notorious for having grand ideas of getting of trying to get to a certain place without the strategy put in place on how to exactly get there. And I think that is certainly the case here with this green energy uh, infrastructure that we want. I, I'm yet to see exactly put in place timelines of what we need to do to get to whatever it is that end game is going to be. But obviously it's going to take a lot of metal like copper and lithium and cobalt and nickel and all those things. You know, so I'm just, you know, I'm wondering from where you are and, and your involvement in Washington, D.C. and the people you talk to, is there a um, willingness to sit down at the table in a bipartisan way and say, this is what we have here in the United States. This is what we can produce to get to whatever that end game is in the Green Revolution or, you know, the Green Movement. Uh do do we have do we have the capacity to do that right now, or is Washington in such disarray that nobody will talk to anybody and it's just dead upon arrival? There's there's plenty of consensus uh, whether or not it's in the House or the Senate. There are hearings all the time. I actually think there was just one today in the Senate 
Um, and it was talking about all of these issues, but again, it's, it's talking about them, okay? It's time to stop talking, time to stop writing white papers, and time to start allocating a lot of this capital that we hear so much about. I mean, when, when President Biden's infrastructure bill was passed last year, there was around $7 billion U.S. dollars devoted to recycling and waste cleanup from mines and so on and so forth. And, and the question always becomes, okay, so this is ter- terrific. You know, the money got approved. How do you allocate it? You know, um, it's, a, it's a big question. And, and we haven't seen much really allocated uh, from a government perspective beyond the rare earth sector. Whether or not it's MP materials or Linus have both been beneficiaries of Department of Defense uh, grants to build out their supply chains. So um, again, you know, timing is of the essence in some ways. You want to be methodical about how you do this, but given the fact that in my view, it's it's a three-horse race. It used to just be China through versus the rest of the world. Now it's China versus the EU and the United States. So we're competing for resources, we're competing for intellectual capital, and ultimately the jobs and the tax revenue that, that come from it. So um, I, don't know, I don't know how much more emphatic I could possibly be. I call it the paradox of green growth. You know, yeah. we, I think we all want the same thing, right? Like a clean environment and so on and so forth, and jobs and industrial infrastructure, and we want to lead the world in all of these... these um, capacities for lack of a better phrase but it doesn't take less resources it takes more i get the question all the time well, what about recycling and thrifting those really won't make a difference uh in terms of general supply and demand dynamics before the next decade so we need more raw material and we need it now it, is it is it's not the end of the world if this would happen but is it the end of a political career if say both sides of the political spectrum, the U.S. came and said, listen, we're going to green light something like resolution in Arizona and exchange will approve Keystone. So now you actually are bringing in the entire spectrum of energy policy back as one, as a whole. I mean, am, am I just being completely optimistic here and naive to think that that might or maybe could get the ball rolling here. You give, you know, back in the day where we used to actually make negotiations and quote unquote compromise. I think, you know, if that were to happen, you'd see a lot of environmentalists heads exploding. Um, because, you know, there is no, there is no middle ground with a lot of people in this debate, unfortunately, but you know, the, the horse trading always happens in Washington. Will it, will it be on the scale of, you know, a resolution for a keystone or vice versa? remains to be seen. I, I just think that the easiest way, like the, the path of least resistance is focusing on R&D, okay? And that's why I've been optimistic about recycling in the past and remain optimistic. Um, lithium extraction technologies, um, all, there's all kinds of stuff that I think we could possibly be doing that would, would please, if you will, both sides of the aisle in Washington. But again, you know, that's all nice and it will help on the edges in the in the interim but we need more raw material and we need it now and that just comes from traditional mining there's no way around it how would you assess the current administration's uh, energy policies i know that's a big question and and you're not gonna and you're you're gonna get hate mailed no matter what you say so you might as well come out and say it chris I think that, look, they're obviously not in an enviable position. That would be my hedge statement. Um, but, you know, they'll, it just seems like 
there is no coherent policy, okay? In the sense that, all right, so the Keystone Pipeline gets shut down and that's that. And then I see a um, headline that came across the wire. I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, but now we're asking the Canadians to send us more oil. But there's no pipeline to be able to do that. So we're going to put it on rail, which is probably from a cost perspective, more expensive, number one. Um, and number two, just from a rail perspective, arguably more dangerous as well. So I'm not really sure if that makes sense um, at all. Actually, I don't think it does make sense. Now on the green energy side of things, again, we can build all the gigafactories and cathode factories that we want. We can subsidize them through low interest loans or loan guarantees. But if we're serious about self-sufficiency and economic and national security, you just need more raw materials, okay? Now, whether or not, again, that comes across from across the border in Canada and we do some sort of a deal there, that's certainly possible as well. So I just think that, I guess, if I had to summarize the, the energy policy of the Biden administration, it's it's all over the map. It's not focused. It's not willing to sort of, I think, pick fights with... Um, certain certain groups you know to push this through and so i think that's a real challenge until a clear pathway is laid down um we're probably going to continue to dither a little bit it's a lot it's a it's a big topic and i'm glad that i could have some time of yours to discuss it all chris but you know you know let me give you the last word here and we we've discussed a lot lithium nickel copper oil and gas politics I mean, obviously everything. Um, as you move forward into the spring, we're coming out of the winter. Uh, we're seeing inflationary pressures all over the place from fossil fuels to the metals itself. You know, what are you really paying attention to here to kind of, what might be a catalyst or something that happens that really puts a trigger into you that gives you uh, a clear idea of where we're heading and what, what we're going to be doing when it comes to policy? Uh, well, look, I mean, we are, this is an inflationary environment we're in. It sounds like central banks uh, or central bankers, I should say, here in the United States are, I, I don't think they could telegraph their moves any more clearly. I mean, um, things are going to get more expensive. In other words, the cost of money is going to increase as interest rates rise. So, you know, bringing this back to energy policy and bringing it back to green energy policy, I mean, it's, it's just going to get more expensive across the board. And so focusing on those technologies that allow for more efficient extraction or more efficient battery materials production, just from an investor perspective, I think is the way forward. Um, I, I do think that deglobalization is, is here to stay. Again, what it ultimately looks like in five to ten years is is probably fodder for another podcast. But um, <laughs> given that, right, given the fact that, again, I think things are just going to continue to get more expensive, uh, you've got to focus on the technology to to manage and hedge those costs. Chris, how can people reach out to you, follow-up questions or just kind of inquiries? Sure. So, I mean, I'm out there on Twitter. I think my handle is uh, at cberry1, the number one. Um, and uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well. You can do that. And uh, those are probably the two best ways. I've got an email at cberry, C-B-E-R-R-Y, at house, H-O-U-S-E, dash mountain.com. Happy to do any follow-up. Chris, good to connect with you, man. 
That is a bit you too, too long. Yeah. Uh, hopefully things, uh, you have a beautiful spring there in uh, the D.C. area. I believe, are the cherry blossoms out yet? They they have come and gone. They were, they gone were early already. this year. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, but yeah, starting to get warmer. And so that's a good thing. All right. Well, enjoy the springtime and we'll be sure to catch up uh, here in the coming months. All right. Thanks, Trevor. We're going to take a short break, everybody. Uh, we'll be right back with Paul Wessels from Western Copper and Gold. Stay tuned. back here with the second segment of our Friday morning episode here on Mining Stock Daily. Uh, welcome back. Yes, he is the returning champion, one of the OGs of the podcast, Mr. Paul Wessels, CEO of Western Copper and Gold. Uh, Paul, we've, uh, we're going to talk specifically a little bit about Casino, some latest developments out of the project in Yukon. I do also want to get your thoughts on kind of general market analysis in the uh, metal space, specifically gold and base metals and copper, which you're obviously involved in. Um, but let's first talk about the company here. Uh, a couple weeks ago, well, late March, I don't know if that was a couple weeks ago, uh, you put out new drill results from Casino here. Uh, let's talk about the results, but then also talk about the market reaction. I believe it was the following day. And WRN was up 20% on the day. And I, I'm lucky enough, fortunately for me, maybe unfortunately for you, uh, I, I get to contact you whenever I can and say like, Paul, what's going on? (laughs) And, uh, you had no idea. Uh, so perhaps it was just market reaction from those drill results. Uh, but, uh, you know, what's your, what's your thoughts here on what's happening? Yeah, no, that, 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 that was an exciting, uh, it was an exciting day that Friday. And I had, uh, you know, lots of people uh, emailing me and what's going on, what's going on. And, and I mean, it, it was, I mean, the one thing that it was, is it was all buying out of the United States. So one of the things that I, you know, one of the things we can, can see and, and we track very closely is, is whether the trading is in Canada or the U.S. And this was all out of the U.S. But, but yeah, I mean, I'll come back. It was actually two days after the um, we issued our news re- uh, release on the drill results, and the day after we issued our year-end financials. So our CFO said, "Well, it must have been those year-end financials," which for a <laughs> for a development company like ourselves that are not really that exciting. Um, but yeah, um, I, you know, in in terms of, uh, I'll sort of uh, unpack the the question sort of in two ways. I mean, first of all, with the drill results. A, a couple of, of of interesting things with the drill results. I, I mean, first of all, um, you know, just, just again, you know, the, this is the drill program that we did with Rio Tinto, and and very interesting to see where they're drilling. Again, it's the you know the core of our deposit, uh, and you know all the drilling there it confirmed all the importance of that core, the good grades that we we see in that core, and and you know just to sort of go throw some of the, the big numbers. I mean, we had, um, you know, cl- close to 300 meters of 1%, over 1% copper equivalent. 
uh, you know, another uh, 65.4 meters of, of 2.5% copper equivalent. And that's, you know, we actually released those a bit earlier. Um, uh, you know, a number of other good results in, in that area. Um, we also did a few exploration holes. And, and you know, keep in mind that exploration holes are, are, are by their very nature, a, a bit of a roll of the dice. And, um, but, you know, there was one hole on, on the outskirts of the deposit that, you know, particularly had uh, some, some very interesting um, uh, gold results. It was close to 55 meters of uh, a little under a gram per ton gold. It's a little bit deep, but, you know, you know, 50 meters of close to a gram per ton gold is, is nothing to sneeze at. Um, so, I mean, again, it just, it, it illustrates that, you know, an enormous deposit here. I mean, we've got the core, which is, is 330 million tons at 0.7. The overall resource adds another 3.3 billion tons on top of that, and now outside of that, we're finding like 50 meters of, of, of very good uh, gold grades, um, you know, a great system, and and so, you know, I think that certainly is one of the things that that moved the share price um, on on that week, uh, and and has continued to move it up. Yeah. Uh, so, in, in case people are unfamiliar with the news, I mean, it did happen a little while ago. Uh, a couple of the highlights from the drill assay results, 300 meters of 0.7% copper equivalent, 250 meters of 0.58% copper equivalent, another 300 meters of 0.57% copper equivalent, all within the leached cap. So, you know, talk to me, like this, <clears throat> some of the areas that were drilled have obviously been drilled before, you know, but what what is, what is since this, this drill program is planned with Rio Tinto, how is the approach different this go around than say it was before? Uh, much more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, what what the work that Rio did was was confirmatory drilling. So, I mean, they were drilling in area, um, and actually, if if you go through the news release, one of the things that's interesting is to look at the plan map, and you know, the plan map shows all these you know black dots where we've done the historical drilling and and. You can see that where all very dense black dots is exactly where Rio drilled. So again, it's this core of the deposit. But yeah, I mean, the the biggest thing that, that is, I mean, drilling a hole is drilling a hole. Uh, the big difference is just the, I mean, they took every, all of the core and, and ran it through this Enersoft scanning system, which um, does a whole bunch of things, but really just allows you to sort of have this permanent record of the geology. Um, you know, more than just copper and gold and silver and, and molybdenum. I mean, they did quite extensive analytical work on every single bit of core. I mean, essentially, we took our assay costs per meter and almost tripled them um, to, to put this into perspective. So that, you know, another sort of thing that they did and, you know, wanted us to do when, when we did this drilling with them. Um, so those are sort of the key things that, that were different. And so what we've got um, now is, is actually a really a better understanding of <clears throat> the geology, the controls of, and again, it's that core zone. It's all about this core zone. I mean, I, you know, it's one of the things we flagged a few years ago, a few years ago. Um, and then, you know, when, when Rio's come in, that, that's really been the area that they've concentrated on. Uh, there, I believe there are nine holes reported out of 22. Um, do you assume there will be one or two more releases with these drill assay results? Mm. When might those hit the market? 
No, that that was the full set. Oh, that might have been an set? earlier release. Yeah, I mean, th- this was the full twenty-two that came out. Okay. Um, that that date came out. So that's that sort of wraps up the drilling from from twenty twenty-one. Um, so th- th- that covers the whole set off. But um, but yeah, I mean, now we're now we're we're sitting down. I mean, the results are in. We're we're pouring over them and and looking forward here to you know twenty twenty two and what we're going to do this summer. And uh, um, it's it's probably going to be a little bit of of cleaning up you know unfinished things from twenty twenty one. But it also I mean some of the new results have you know really made us you know look hard at uh, some of the new areas and uh, we'll see uh, right. you know like well, I said it's only a couple of weeks all these results so okay <laughs> yeah that, well okay so that's an interesting topic here mm-hmm. Paul I mean and I think you've got a lot to answer here I mean what do you do you've got this massive investment from Rio mm-hmm. Tinto you're working side by side it's like you're working with them but they're also kind of doing their own thing with the casino project um, obviously the market's paying attention uh, I, in fact, uh, we could talk about the market, but uh, in a little bit. But I do want to kind of get your sense here. Of it, it seems like there's a lot of anticipation of really what you're going to do moving forward, with or without Rio by your side. Um, you know, so what do you do in this situation? Through you got a, you got a summer exploration window here. What what does Western do with or without Rio? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a great question, um, and and it's a great question because it's, it's a complicated question even even for us because, you know, our, our agreement with Rio is is this eighteen month agreement, uh, which you know there's a, a year's worth of work uh, that work is almost done. I mean, we're working on the last bits of it, and then the idea is that we sit down after that and you know see what the next steps are going to be. So we certainly fully anticipate, you know, sitting down and, and talking about those next steps soon. What does soon mean, uh, you know, you know, in, in the next few months? So in, in parallel to that, what we need to do, and, and we've always said this, and I mean, you know, I, I might have mentioned this before, is we just need to continue to drive forward the project. So feasibility study out in, by, by the end of, of June. Big work on permitting, so certainly working on that as well. But this is why I said with these drill results, we also take a look at well, okay, you know, the, the in the back. No, I mean, and and it's not completely in the background, but you know, as as one track, we're engineering permitting the casino copper gold project. But in addition to that, we're sort of saying like, look, what else is happening in that area? What are the other opportunities? So if you go back to 2019, we doubled our land package. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason we doubled that land package wasn't to make necessarily casino bigger, but was to make casino more exciting. What are the, And there's a lot of opportunities out there. We have a drill season come on, coming up here in front of us. There's certainly some, some follow-up that we need to do in terms of the work we're doing with Rio. But, you know, just wearing my Western Copper hat, I also, you know, have a couple of interesting ideas in terms of, you know, are there some targets that we could go and take a look at that that we haven't had a chance to do? Because, you know, keep in mind that, you know, by getting Rio in and and raising all that money, I mean, we have all this opportunity, but then we were doing a lot of work with Rio over this Mm -hmm. as well. So, I mean, we sort of just didn't have a time to sort of hit some of those, um, you know, more, more interesting sort of targets out there. So... 
those are that's sort of been the discussion here um, now that we have the the drill results from last year in is is where do we go from here in terms of of those those interesting targets and they're not growing the resource they're what else is out there i mean is i mean we've got a huge land package is there another coffee deposit out there maybe mm. another casino maybe maybe uh, I, I, let's talk a little bit about the market. I mean, you've been in this business. Sure. You've seen a couple. You've seen a couple cycles. Um, it is really interesting right now. The spread between, if we just stick with gold, mm -hmm. uh, the gold producers and the gold explorers. Gold producers are close to making. They have have made recently fifty two week highs, if not new all. You know, just incredible moves on the gold explorers. Uh, however, the junior, uh, the gold producers, excuse me, the explorers have basically made 52-week lows. Uh, and it's just, I've never seen such a spread between the twos. Um, at the same time, the, the only plays that seem to be bucking the trend are plays like Casino. Massive copper gold type porphyry development plays. Um, that has seen big strategic investments come in. For example, Rio Tinto coming in uh, with the strategic investment with Western. We've seen BHP move in uh, with Philo. Uh, Lundin Mining coming in with Jose Maria. Uh, you know, so it seems like there's a move for big projects by these major producers. And that's really taking a lot of a lot of attention in the in the market um you know i guess i just said a lot there but there's a lot to to, to watch i you know what is your take here between the spread and then also plays like casino that are bucking that trend yeah no it, it was interesting uh you know we were just at the one-to-one -one conference in, in las vegas last week and and you know talking to you know our peers in in, in the gold exploration and development phase they you know it's it's not been not been a fun time but uh yeah i mean copper is getting a, a lot of love right now and i think that for, for a good reason i mean it's a battery metal um it's uh there's not a lot of copper deposits out there um if you look at russia russia takes i mean sure it's not like nickel it's not like platinum palladium but you know again you you've removed a little bit of of copper out of the market by by uh, you know what's going on in Russia, and so I think that that's you know all those things are leading to sort of increased um, interest in the copper stories. And actually, I loved exactly what you said. I mean, you know, here we've got you know we had Rio invest in us last year. You had Philo have BHP invest in them this year. You had uh, Lundin by Jose Maria. Um, you know, you go back. Even before that, you had Soul Gold and you had BHP and, and Newcrest invest in that. So you're starting to see, and actually South 32 uh, has been very active as, as well, I mean, in, in, in investing in Trilogy. So you're starting to see, you're seeing some action. I mean, you know, why, why, are, you, why are stories like ours getting some, some more investors and, and seeing, you know, reasonable share price movements? It's because there is something happening in this area. Um, and, you know, I think that people, and, 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 and it's been interesting. I mean, we both at that, that, that conference in, in Las Vegas and, and even, you know, we're, we're fielding cold calls from investors, generalist investors. And actually we had a call earlier this week, we'd, we'd never met them before. And, 
and they actually reached out to us and he said look i've been talking to, he says i think i i'm fully bought into the copper story i've you know I, there's a you know dearth of good copper projects i've been all i've been talking to is, is copper companies for the past three days you know the first question i had is well there can't be that many he says well no you know that means like six companies because that's really all there is out there um and she says i you know i i'm really excited about this and you know here's a guy who knows nothing about mining knows you know never invested i mean he was he was a small cap guy small cap micro cap guy so i mean he certainly that's what he liked but you know he's like i'm all about battery metals and you know i last week i did lithium this week i'm doing copper sort of idea Hmm. and 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 that's what it is it's really that move Uh, that's very fascinating what was the i mean was that the similar sentiment in las vegas at one-to-one was kind of a move aside gold plays let's talk about base metals I mean, I think, you know, I mean, the advantage of those things is you've got a, you've got a captured audience. So, I mean, I mean, the good gold stories were, were getting attention as well. But, um, you know, I certainly, uh, you know, there was, you know, there was ourselves, there was uh, maybe one, well, there was definitely one, maybe two other copper um, stories there. And talking to them, you know, both of us had pretty full set schedules. So uh, certainly interest there. All right. Uh, Paul, let's leave it at that because uh, I, I'm looking forward. It's a chart I've been paying attention to very closely lately. Um, like I said, it's anticipated highly by the market when something might happen. Decision either way. I'm waiting for the halt. I'm waiting, <laughs> I'm waiting for it. Um, but it'd be very uh, exciting. You know, uh, we've got a pretty good, if I may say so, if I may uh blow my own ego a little bit Uh, we've got a pretty good track record of companies that we've worked with on the podcast that have been acquired in the last couple years and so uh, i'd like to keep that record alive paul okay i you know i will do everything i can to make sure that your record stays alive (laughs) (laughs) thanks buddy it's good to catch up with you all right have yourself a great weekend all right you too thanks a lot trevor paul west sells from western copper and gold trading on the TSX with WRN and on the NYSE American with the same symbol, WRN. Uh, That's a wrap here for us this week. We'll be back Monday morning with the news briefing. Have a great weekend, everybody. Be well. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.